2 Samuel chapter 23 is where we're at. If you'll open your Bibles there, we're going to jump right into it because i got a lot of ground to cover. We're only going to go over five verses today, um, but uh, <laughs> i got a lot to say. I say that like it's something new. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 23. Pop quiz this morning, literally, uh, as we start the message, uh, who can complete the names of these songs? Who let the dogs out, all right? She blinded me with science, all right, you got that? Don't worry, be happy. Eight, six, seven, five. Here on night now, you're welcome. That song is stuck in your head for the rest of the day. What do these songs have in common? They are all known as one-hit wonders. They are one-hit wonders. They hit the charts, and that was the the sole claim to fame of the the people that did that. You're like, no, no, no. Tommy Two-Tone was awesome. Yeah, name another song besides Jenny, because that that, that was his only hit. Now, uh, our text today, if you're there in chapter 23, begins, now these are the last words of David. Um, The idea is that these are not the last words that David would speak chronologically. Rather, this is his last composition. It is literally the last inspired written words of the Lord that David would pen in Psalm. And David was not a one-hit wonder. Uh, By God's grace, by God's anointing, David uh, authored, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, fully 73 psalms that are attributed to him, Uh, and this is his last inspired psalm. Now, there's four things we're going to look at in the the five verses that we're going to cover today. We're going to see an unworldly message, an uncompromising mandate, an unworthy messenger, and an unending promise, 2 Samuel 23 Verse 1, now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me, he who rules over men must be just ruling in the fear of God. Now, if you're taking notes, the first section here, an unworldly message. David says in verses 2 and 3, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me. The God of Israel said, The Rock of Israel spoke to me. And this here is a picture of the Trinity. We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, each one participating in the conveyance of this message, this unworldly message Uh, to David. And what we see in the idea here is that God, in all of his glory, in all of his power, supernaturally led David to write these words down that we read now in this this psalm that that he has penned. (coughs) The Bible is a book of history. It's a book of prophecy. It is a book of science and poetry. It's a book of human behavior. Most importantly, it's a love story. It conveys the heart of God, that God would create mankind in his own image, that he would give to us as part of being created in the image of God, that we would have a sovereign will, that we're not created as robots, we're not created as those that can't think and act for ourselves, but no, God gives to us a free choice. And he sets before us life and death and blessings and cursings, and he begs us to choose life. 
Well, Adam and Eve chose death. They rebelled against God, and sin entered into the race of mankind. You and I, as children of Adam, we all are sinners by nature and by choice. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death. But the Bible is a book of good news, and it tells us about God's plan for mankind and his plan of redemption. That God, having created us in his image and having given us a choice, and we having chosen to rebel against God, God still supernaturally worked and sent the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to come and to pay the penalty that was due our sin, the wages that we had earned by our sinfulness, which was death. Jesus paid that penalty on the cross, and the whole Bible speaks about that. All of the Old Testament pointing forward to in picture and type and in prophecy, telling us about the Messiah that's going to come to redeem us and to to set us free from the bondage of sin, our captivity to sin. And then the, the, the Gospels doing, giving us that present message of what Jesus did when he came. Uh, and then the epistles and the rest of the New Testament looking backwards to the work of Jesus Christ and what he has, has done for us as well as looking forward in hope to his second coming. And so these are all of the message of the Bible. And it's supernaturally delivered by a sovereign God who lives outside of time and space, who knows the end from the beginning. And God gives to us his supernatural word. And this is what David is saying here, is that God spoke to me. God gave me these words uh, to deliver. It is, it is an unworldly message. There's 66 books in our Bibles. And, and they were written over a time frame of about 1,500. 100 years, 40 different authors, three languages, three continents, over this 1,500 years, each of these books written, divinely inspired, so that there's no contradiction whatsoever. Uh, The writers maintained complete historical, complete moral, prophetical, and theological accuracy and continuity. They wrote in harmony, and and they kept that continuity and that harmony from Genesis to the book of Revelation. The Apostle Peter said this. He says the Bible is completely reliable. And he said that, that we need to set our course by God's unworldly message, his supernatural word, his sovereign word, that we need to set our course by that. I like the way the NIV phrases his last, or rather Peter's words on this. In 2 Peter 1, uh, he says, we also have the prophetic message, in other words, the Bible, uh, as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He's saying, look, this is, this is a, a prophetic message. It's, it's completely reliable. Years ago, uh, when I was in the fire department, I had a captain, and I, I was sh- talking with him. I was just sharing the gospel. And, and as, I'm, as I'm telling him, I said, listen, God's word says this. This is what God says in his word. And, and he interrupts me, and he says, well, you know who wrote the Bible, don't you? And I said, well, you're going to say men. He says, you're right, men wrote the Bible. And the reason why he's saying that is because he doesn't want to be accountable to the words that the Bible says. He wants to be able to blow them off. He wants to be able to say, well, that's men's word. That's, that's not God's word. 
And, and this is, sadly, this is a, a lie that's been, that's been propagated, not just throughout the world, but it's being now propagated through churches. It's being propagated through theological seminaries now where they're casting doubt on different sections of God's word, which is, which is really ultimately influenced by Satan, who in the very beginning with Eve in the garden was the one who said, did God really say that? I don't think you heard correctly. I don't think God really said that. And there is an ongoing full court press to, to challenge, hey, did God really say what he said, is it really a supernatural message? Is it really an unworldly message? Or are these just words written by men? Well, indeed, the Bible is supernaturally given. It is an unworldly message. And the Bible makes it clear that, that men wrote as God directed them. Not as they were directed, but as God directed them. Again, the Apostle Peter says this. He says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now that's easy to say, and it's, and it's pretty convenient, right? It's easy to say, oh, what, what these words that are, that are written and contained in this, in this book, hey, they're, they're, they're God's word, they're not, they're not men's word. Now, it's convenient to say that. Hey, you got to pay attention to this because this is what God said, you know, and, and you have people like my fire captain who are like, but men wrote it. So how can you say that it came from God? Now, there's many proofs to back, out, back up what I'm saying and what the Apostle Peter is saying. We have many proofs to understand that the Bible that you hold in your hands today is an unworldly message. It's supernatural in origin, even though it was written by men. One of those proofs is the continuity of the Bible that you hold. As I said, written over, you know, 1,500-year time period on three different con continents, three different languages, 40 different authors, and yet not one word contradicts another one. They, they, it is an integrated message that is absolutely, completely, totally reliable and consistent. That's one of the proofs. Another proof that this Bible is, in fact, supernatural in origin is that it's historically accurate. So much so that when the Bible speaks of different civilizations, different, different uh, uh, empires that existed, and they, and they you know, don't find that in the archaeological record, and, and so the, the historians will say, well, there's no proof of that. We have no, no archaeology that has supported that that civilization even ever existed. And then, you know, the answer is, we'll give it a few years, and lo and behold, they will make an archaeological discovery, and they'll go, well, I'll be doggone. The Bible is true. It said it, and here's the evidence. And this happens over and over again. So that's another proof. Another compelling proof that the Word of God is true and without error and is, in fact, supernatural in origin is the evidence of how it changes people's lives. You look at the apostles. Here these guys were with Jesus Christ three and a half years, and Jesus told them, you know what? They're going to they're gonna, they're gonna go after me, and all y'all are going to bail. Loose paraphrase. And that's exactly what happens. 
The, the soldiers come, they grab Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's taken before Herod, he's taken before Pontius Pilate, he's put on trial, he's scourged, he's ultimately crucified. And what happened to the disciples? They all bailed on him. Every last one ran for their lives until the third day. They buried Jesus, he rose again from the dead. And he showed himself to the disciples over a 40-day period. And one particular instance, he was seen by 500 people at the same time. Eyewitness testimony, strongest testimony in a court of law. Hundreds of people saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. And what effect did it have on the disciples? Every last one of them to a man died unwilling to renounce Jesus Christ. They died for their faith. Listen, nobody dies for a lie. They, 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 you don't, if, they, if this was the disciples putting on a big old show and making up some story, when it came time to give their life, nobody's going to, to, to die for a lie that they know to be untrue. And so it's a proof that the Bible is in fact true. Now the most compelling truth, the most compelling proof that the Bible is true is prophecy. Prophecy is when the Bible says, before it ever happens, hey, here's what's going to happen. And we have, over and over again, prophecy that the Bible gave hundreds, sometimes thousands of years in advance, that actually came to pass, that actually came true. The rise and fall of kingdoms. Daniel in, you know, prophesies about the, these kingdoms that are going to rise up. He, he accurately pr- predicts what the order of the rise of these kingdoms are going to be. And these, some of them not prominent kingdoms that would ever have worldwide dominance. And he's like, well, they're, they're going to rise up and they're going to conquer and so on. Nailed it. Uh, prophecies about the coming of Jesus Christ. Prophecies about Jesus' resurrection. Prophecies about the end times. What's going to happen uh, when, when this whole thing winds up. Prophecies about the return of Jesus Christ. And, and these prophecies about Jesus, specifically speaking of the prophecies of the coming, the first coming of Jesus Christ, hey, these were given hundreds of years before Jesus ever showed up. Over 300 prophecies were made about the first coming of Jesus Christ. And it's documented, it's proven, these happened chronologically hundreds of years before Jesus ever showed up on the scene. Prophecies about his birth, that he'd be from Nazareth that he'd be born of a virgin in Bethlehem. Prophecies about the method of his death, that he would be crucified. Hundreds of years before Jesus was, was crucified, the Bible said that he would be crucified, and this was before crucifixion was even a thing, before it was ever even invented. The Bible said that he would be crucified. Prophecies that Jesus would be scourged, that, they, that there would be stripes left upon his back, that men would cast lots for his clothing. Prophecies that he would resurrect from the dead. All of these prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And let me, let me say this. If, if somebody was to say, well, you know what? They got lucky. The Bible writers got lucky. They made prophecies and they just happened to, you know, or, or, hey, you know, he engineered things to make it happen. Look, you can't engineer having the people cast lot for your clothing. You can't engineer that you're born of a virgin. You can't engineer that you're from Nazareth, yet you're born in Bethlehem. You can't, you can't engineer those things. 
And so people will say, well, you know, okay, but it just happened by random chance. Let's look at the mathematics of that. Let's say that, you know, remember what I said, over 300 prophecies about Jesus' first coming. What if only eight prophecies were fulfilled? What are the, what are, what are the statistical odds that even eight of those prophecies would have been fulfilled, would have come true? Well, the statistical odds, the number is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. And let me put that in perspective for you. You know what the odds of winning the lottery are? They're 1 to 120 million. Now, if you won the lottery 10 times in a row, that's the number. If only eight prophecies about Jesus Christ were made that, that actually came true by random chance. Again, put that in perspective for you. Another analogy of that number is if you fill the state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars and you paint one of them red and bury it and then you parachute in and magically pull out the one that was painted red, that's the number. If only eight prophecies were fulfilled. Well, it was ever so much more than eight. Now what if 48, let's just add 40 to the number. What if 48 prophecies of the over 300 were the ones that came true? What are the statistical odds of that? Well, that number is 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Huge number. Let me put that in perspective for you. It's the number of electrons in the entire universe. Those are a lot of odds stacked against the house, right? Well, Jesus didn't fulfill eight prophecies. He didn't fulfill 48 prophecies. He fulfilled 324 prophecies. Listen, the odds of that, the number is bigger than any unit of measure that we, that we can possibly ascribe. I mean, it's just, it's, it's an impossibility. And yet it happened. All of that leads us to this. Listen, that the Bible is true. God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, said this. He said, only I can tell you the future before it happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. God's like, look, I'm God. I do whatever I want, and I'll tell you, I'll call my shot. I'll stand at home base and I will point to the, to, the, to the stands every single time I'm up to bat and every single time I'm up to bat, it's out of the park. God is who he says he is. Now here's the implication, that when the Bible gives us direction, when it gives us admonition, when it gives us exhortation in how we're to live, this is absolutely true north. It's always right. And you are always wrong if you're, if you're in opposition to it. You ever want to say, well, I don't know, I doubt that, I don't want it. No. What you hold in your hands is an unworldly message from God who exists outside of time and space. And he knows the end from the beginning. And so everything he says is right. Everything he says is true. And we're now left with the decision, am I going to follow it or not? So this is what David is saying. He's saying, look, the Spirit of the Lord spoke to me and his word was on my tongue. And notice now at the end of verse 3, here's what God says. God says there at the end of verse 3, he who rules over men must be just ruling in the fear of God. Now this is David saying, God gave me a word, and this is God's word to me, and it's God's word to you. Thus saith the Lord, he who rules over men must be just ruling in the fear of God. This brings us to the second thing to see here in these few verses, and that is an uncompromising mandate. Not only is this an unworldly message, but it is an uncompromising mandate. He who rules over men must be just. You might want to circle that word just. Nearby you could write this. You could write correct, right, lawful, 
That's what that word just means. It means correct. It means right. It means lawful. And it encompasses many things. Let's, let's dig into this for a minute. First of all, being just. And here's what we're talking about. We're talking about you. If you will rule over men, you must first be just. Here on Father's Day, dads, if you will rightly rule over your home, you must first be just. And the implication of this are many. First of all, it, it, it applies to our conduct and our character. You must be just in your conduct and in your character. Here's the idea. The idea is that in order to rule over men, that you first have to rule over yourself. You have to rule over yourself. You can't lead others if you can't lead yourself. You can't live a life that says, do as I say, not as I do. No, you have to first lead yourself. Paul said this to the Romans. He says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? See, the issue here is that that you have to, if you are going to rule over men, that you must be first just, right, correct, lawful. Occasionally, we will have parents come in for counseling. Hey, you got to talk to my kid. He's out of control. And, and from time to time, I'll see, you know, a parent will have his kid sitting there, and the parent will begin to talk, and the kid will just roll his eyes as the, kid, as, as the dad's talking or as the mom's talking or whatever. And it's not always true, but it's usually an indication that, hey, you know what? The kid sees you as a big old hypocrite because, because you know, you, here you are talking about the kid, and the kid in his mind is thinking, well, you're putting on a big show for pastor. That ain't you. You're not that guy at home. Something to take a walk with there. And so this uncompromising mandate that we who rule over men must be just, it applies to our conduct and our character. Additionally, it applies to our causes. The idea here is that not only are you going to be just in your conduct and your character, but you're also going to be just in what you commit to. What are the causes, the banners of the causes that you carry? What are you committing to? Your time, your money, your resources, your pursuits, your passions. What are you committing to? If you will rule over men, you must first be just in these things. This applies to maybe the businesses and the industries that we support. The choices that we make in terms of, you know, what are the causes, the banners, the causes that I'm going to carry. I was having a conversation with my mom and dad yesterday, and I went to see my dad for for Father's Day um, yesterday, and um, we had a political conversation. (laughs) My mom and dad love the Lord. They have a saving faith in Christ. We, we, we debate on theology sometimes. Their theology isn't exactly in line with my theology, but that's okay. They have a saving faith in Christ. They love him. Their politics, I'm like, how did you give birth to me? How did you raise me? They're very liberal in their politics. I'm very conservative in my politics. So we're having a conversation and, um, and I, you know, it, 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 can, it can get contentious, but it's my mom and dad. And, and so I'm not, I, you know, I've just learned something. I'm just not going to fight that battle. 
But I was just sharing my heart with him. And I just said, look, I'm a one-issue voter for me. That's, I'm just a one-issue voter. For me, the issue is life. That's my issue. And I, I, I'm, I will not stand before the Lord having ever cast a vote for somebody that is going to support abortion. That, that for me, is, is, you know, there's a lot of issues. I'm not going to get in today. You can't sucker me into that. But, um, but for me, that's, that, is, that is the deciding factor. And, yeah, thank you, Lord. Now, my mom, she's, you know, her, her and my, my dad, for that matter, I mean, they, they believe in the sanctity of life. But they place a lot of weight on how are we caring for people? Where, where are, you know, how can, how can we, you know, just turn our backs on the needs of people and they want to be very socially um, uh, generous? And I go, great, that's fine. But, but I'm not going to be socially generous on the one hand and, and you know, then not uh, vote, and then vote for a candidate who's not going to be socially generous to the infant in the womb. And so, so we're having this, 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 this conversation where I'm just sharing my heart. Look, I'm not saying anything about your decisions. I'm telling you for me, mom and dad, this is, this is where I'm at. So this bleeds in. We're talking about causes and we're talking about being just in, in, in your decision-making process. And I get it. I know it's very complicated. I get it. But, but you know, when I'm making decisions, I go, look, I'll give you an example here. And I'm, maybe I'm going to step on a few toes. Why not? Let's go. So... Um, <laughs> So there's an organization, the, the, the Susan Coleman organization, you know, they, 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 they're breast cancer, uh, you know, all that. Well, they give like, you know, a huge chunk of money to Planned Parenthood in, in, in their support. Now, you know, this is debated on how much they give and, and all of this, but, it, but it's like close to a million dollars that they give to Planned Parenthood. Now, it's earmarked for mammograms, but here's, you know, there's a couple of things about that for me. One is, um, you know, the, the mammograms, most Planned Parenthood places don't provide it. They say they do, but they don't. Um, and, and even if they did, let's, let's just concede the point that they all go, it all goes to mammograms and they provide it, which is questionable to me. Um, then that just frees up almost a million dollars for their other activities, their primary activity. And so, so I go, you know what, I, I'm, I'm not going to support that organization. Not going to have anything to do with it. You know, this, this whole, you know, target thing. You know, I signed the petition, and I know, you know, boycotts don't work. I don't care. I'm just a person. I'm just not going to give them my money. I'm like, forget it. You're just not getting my money. I'll never shop there again. You lost me as customer. Now, that's me. You make your decisions however you want, but I'm, but I'm saying here from God's word supernaturally, this unworldly sovereign message that, that David is given by God to deliver says, look, he who rules over men must be just. I say, I got to be just in my causes. I got to be just in the things that, <clears throat> that I'm going to commit my resources to. Speaking about time, and as long as I'm stepping on toes, let's talk about that. I, I make a decision because I see in our day and age, you know, uh, a lot of things compete with the assembling of the saints. Satan hates this. He don't want this to happen. So, so we have all kinds of things that come up, and, and the good is the enemy of the great often. And the great 
is, is God's people gathering together in God's house to worship the Lord, to be equipped, and to go out and serve the Lord. And so what will happen, and lots of you know my soapbox issue, you know where I'm going with this. I'll see organized sports that are, that are organized like, hey, we've got this, we have playoffs, it's on Sunday. And I will watch parents sacrifice Sunday. Now, I'm not going to be legalistic and say, you know, oh, but this is a you know, one and done kind of thing. I realize life happens. I realize, you know, whatever. But it's, what is it? It's soccer. It's football. It's cheer. It's this. It's that. And what happens is I see over and over again that parents will <clears throat> quietly send the message to their kid that, you know what, God's cool and all when he's convenient and fits into your schedule. And they will not make the determination and the decision to say, listen, we serve God. Sunday is the day that is set aside for us to gather together and not neglect the fellowship of the saints, as the Bible says. The Bible says it's the manner of some, but we are not to neglect that. But, but as we watch for the coming of Jesus Christ and it gets closer and closer, this is what we need to do. And <clears throat> I will see parents who their kids get to be teenagers. They go off to college. They stop going to church. And they're like, I don't understand why my kid doesn't go to church. And I say, well, look, you know, you might want to take a look in the mirror and see whether or not you contributed to that. Because we need to send the message. And I'm preaching to the choir because you're all here. Praise God. You made a great decision. But I think that this goes to the causes, the banners that we're going to carry. We need to be very careful. If we are going to be just in how we live our lives, then we should live principled lives. And we should live conscious decision lives. We, we need to be those type of people that actually think through and strategically say, what am I going to do to lead my family? Well, I'm going to lead them to Christ. Now, that's not saying football's bad, soccer's bad, softball's bad, whatever. I'm fine. But you remember this because you will have to make a choice. And you have to answer the question, <clears throat> what are you leading your kids to? What are you, what are you teaching them? And so, so we could go on and on. But the causes, this is something we need to think through. Well, being just, being right, being correct, being lawful, it also applies to our community. The idea here is that as David reflects on his reign, he's struck by a great need for rulers to exercise justice. That, that rulers must exercise justice. Now, David, as he says, he who rules over men must be just. Listen, <clears throat> he has seen the difference between the goodness of justice provided and the curse of justice denied. See, leaders have to play by the same rules that they set, not showing any partiality or favoritism, even to themselves. Do as I say, not as I do. What will kids always do? They will do what you do. They're not going to do what you say. Now, David saw this. He experienced this. He saw how this was true for King Saul, who thought nothing of blatantly disregarding God's commandments to him but when his son Jonathan inadvertently disobeyed one of Saul's commandments, he was ready to put his own son to death. David saw this, this lack of justice, this, this, the, the, the goodness of justice that, that was not provided, but it was rather denied. David saw this in his own life. He saw his own failures. He saw <clears throat> when he sent his men out to battle. 
And there they went out to the battlefield on this one particular springtime uh, event. But he stayed home. He stayed away from the battle. And he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He killed her husband Uriah the Hittite to cover it up. And so David in his own life had experience. The curse of justice denied. And listen, this is true for you and me as well. I mean, we need to take a walk with this. Because here it is. Here is where the rubber meets the road. What is it that led these men, these examples that I've given, Saul and David, what was it that led them to compromise in that area? I'll tell you what it is. They lost the fear of God. And what is it in your life that causes you to compromise? It's that you've lost the fear of God in that choice, in that moment. And that's exactly the message that God gives to David to convey here. This is God's sovereign word coming down from heaven, right true, the absolute true north, bank it, take it to the bank. He says, listen, he who rules over men must be just, ruling, here it is, in the fear of God. And if you want to circle that word fear, it's the Hebrew word yirah. And, and it can be translated as a terrifying fear, but that's not the way it's used. In fact, it's used uh, here to, to, to convey respect, to convey reverence, to convey piety, and that's the idea. Look, if you're going to rule over men, you have to have a reverential fear of God. Now, we, we see in the New Testament, there's a Greek equivalent to this Hebrew word, yirah. And the Greek equivalent that's used throughout the New Testament is the word phobos. Uh, we, get, we, we get the word phobia from that. And again, it speaks of a reverential fear of God. We see this word used in several places throughout the New Testament. You see it in, in Romans. You see it in 2 Corinthians. You also see it in Ephesians chapter 5 where it tells us there, again, God's inspired word, that we are to submit to one another in the fear, the phobos, of God. Now, when, when God says in his word, submit, out of a reverential fear for God, that, that word submit, it's a military word. It means literally to be under in rank. And, and the idea of submission, as we've talked about it on many occasions, is not that you're smart, or that the one that you're submitting to, although God is, smarter, um, and, and, and the issue is, it's not, uh, you know, more talented. The idea is that when he says submit to one another in the fear of God, it's, it's the idea that we need to submit to God's appointed order. And we need to recognize that God is the commander-in-chief and that he is, he is set for us an appointed order. And everybody is in a position of being under authority. I don't care who you are. You, you, somebody's got more authority uh, than you. Uh, but everybody is also in a position of authority, and we have to recognize out of a reverential fear that God has established all authority. He makes that very clear in his word. See, when, when a man joins the military, first thing they do is they're going to strip away his individuality. Why do they do that? Well, because he's a member of a company or a battalion. He's a member of a larger group. He now plays a role within that group, but he's no longer an individual. And so the focus in his life is supposed to shift from, hey, what's best for me, to what's best for all. 
And this is the heart of what David is conveying. He's saying, look, you, you know, if, if you're going to rule over men, you yourself got to be just. And you have to live your life in such a way that you're submitted to God with a mindset that no longer thinks and processes what's in it for me, what's best for me. But you have to understand, no, now I fit in a submitted order that God has established and my thought process needs to change from what's best for me to what's best for God's family. And so this is the whole idea. And at the heart of submission is a fearful, reverential respect and piety for our commander-in-chief. Now, with this in mind, we come to the third point here in this text, and it's that of an unworthy messenger. Yes, we we have uh, an unworldly message that's being conveyed, and we have an uncompromising mandate that's being given all by God, the sovereign, perfect creator of all. And who does he give it to? He gives it to an unworthy messenger. Look back at verse 1. David says, thus says David, and notice this progression. He says, David, the son of Jesse. Think about the humility of that. Think about David referring to himself as the son of Jesse. If you were with us when we first started in these two books, back in 1 Samuel, when God spoke to Samuel the prophet and said, go to the house of Jesse and find one of his sons that I've called to be the future king of Israel, was David included in the first round of consideration? He was not. He had seven sons. And Samuel went and he saw these sons and Jesse was more than happy to parade his sons in front of, of, of Samuel and say, check it out, my sons are awesome. And he saw Eliab, first guy he saw, his son, the oldest, Eliab, and he's, and he's just this great, strong, tall-looking soldier of a guy, and Samuel thought in his heart, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before me. And God's like, nope. Now, why did he think that? Because he reminded him of Saul. Saul stood head and shoulders above the rest. And so he's like, well, that guy, look at him. He's a king. And God's like, I don't look at the outward appearance. I look at the heart. And he ain't the guy. And so they parade all seven sons by him. God's like, nope, 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 nope. He's like, you got any kids left? Well, yeah, there's the youngest out stinking up the field with the sheep. You know, there's him. Now, when it says the youngest, it, it doesn't just mean that David was the youngest chronologically. It means that he was the least in his father's estimation. That's what it meant. And, and Jesse himself wasn't anybody remarkable. He was just a farmer, man. She, a sheep herder, you know. I mean, that's just, he's just a, a basic guy. And yet David says, that's who, that's who I was. And David comes in and God's like, arise and anoint him. He, he's the one. David is saying here just out the gate, look, I'm, I'm a nobody, I'm a nothing, but I'm a something because God called me. And that's what he says here. Thus says David, the nobody, the son of Jesse, he goes on, thus says the man raised up on high. Hey, listen, this is God's work. The way this sentence is structured in, in, in the original language, that's, that's the idea. It's like, look, God did this, I had nothing to do with it. He says, Thus says the anointed of the God of Jacob. Again, the power of God is what's being referred to here. 
In other words, David's not saying, hey, listen to me because I'm all that in a bag of chips and I'm amazing. I'm awesome. Check me out. He's not saying any of that. He in his, and we can do that, by the way. We can do that. I, we, we had our VBS just going crazy. And, um, and so all of a sudden, and we, we have our security around. They don't let nobody on the campus, man. We're high and tight on security. Got a few people upset. I'm like, fine, be upset, but the kids are going to be safe. That's what we do here. And so this guy shows up, and the security, our head of security, Jerry, stops him. And uh, he, he, the guy's like, oh, I'm just here to see Pastor Ted. I happen to be standing nearby. He looks at me. I'm like, yeah, it's cool. The guy comes over. It turns out he's Pastor Sunridge Church. He, and he, he, he says to me, he goes, look, man, your guy's VBS is like notorious in the valley. I just had to see it for myself. I just want... Now, I got to be honest with you. At that moment in my heart, I wanted to be like, you bet your socks it's the best VBS in the <laughs> You only wish yours could be a fraction of as good as So I have to be honest, that's what was going on in my heart. And, and, and then the Lord's like, I'm pretty awesome, aren't I? And I'm like, God, is, God you're just good. You're just, you're just, you are just that good. Because we're unworthy messengers, man. And as proud as I am of every single one of our servants, and I am, I give God the glory and the honor and the praise because it's due him because he is awesome and we are not. And he chooses unworthy messengers. We're unworthy messengers. I shared with the servants on the last day of VBS. Jesus told a parable. And his parable was this. He said, look, when a servant goes out and he works in the field, and uh, he comes in, does his master say, oh, girl, thank you so much. Now let me wait on you and let me get you dinner ready. Jesus goes, no, it doesn't work like that. No, he goes and he serves out in the field and then he comes in and then he serves his master when he, when he comes in. That, that's our role. That's, that's, that's the order of things. It's not like, oh, now you wait on me. No, I serve you, God. I'm unworthy. You're worthy. You're holy. You're righteous. That's the idea here. See, because two things David never forgot. Well, we'll, we'll just one last thing. He says, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Again, it's the same idea. It's God's gifting. David's like, yeah, I got these sweet psalms, but where do the words come from? They didn't originate from him. They originated from God. And so the, the whole idea here, David never forgot where he came from and how he got there. And for you and I, we have to remember, listen, where did we come from? How did we get here? What, what has God done in our lives? Saul started that way. You know, 1 Samuel 11, they have victory against the Ammonites and, and everybody after the victory, they're like, let's go find all the people that didn't want to support you, Saul. Let's go kill them all. And at that moment, Saul was like, no, let me lead you instead to Gilgal and we're going to go worship God. We're going to go make sacrifices to God. He remembered who God was and what God was doing and who he was in relation to that. But then chapter 15 of 1 Samuel comes along, and what do we see after the victory, uh, yet another victory against the Amalekites? Saul forgot that reverential respect for his commander-in-chief, and instead he goes off and he builds a monument to himself. 
checking the clock. I don't have time for a tangent. I'll just say this. Look, um, we forget who we used to be. Christians can become the most judgmental, the most harsh, the most critical people. We need to guard our hearts because it's hard enough for Christians to act like Christians. We can't expect the people that are going to hell to act like Christians. And we need to have a heart for the lost that says they're lost. These are, these are just slaves that have been taken captive by the enemy to do his will. We have to love them. We have to care for them. We have to share the good news with them and recognize that they're lost. Do you remember where you came from? Paul told Timothy, he says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I in chief. Well, listen, let's get to the last point, an unending promise. Verse 3, David continues. He's speaking under the anointing of God, and he says, The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He rules, who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. Verse 4, And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after the rain. Listen, what, what, what Timothy is, or what, what David is saying here is he's, he's conveying, he says, look, if I, if you, if we will rule justly in the fear of God, he says two things. He says, you shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, and he says, like tender grass that springs out of the earth shining after the rain. What does this mean? Look, these are both references to Jesus Christ the Messiah. These, are, these, these are, are both references we see in Isaiah 9 too. I'll put it on the screen for you. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. The idea here is that, look, if you will guard your heart, if you will rule justly, if you will rule with the fear of God, then what you can be is like Christ to the people that you encounter. You shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, is his point. And when he talks about the grass that springs out of the earth, Psalm 72, 6 says this. This is a messianic, messianic psalm. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He, Jesus, shall come down like the rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. Here's the idea. The idea is that as we serve, we can be the very hands and feet of Jesus Christ. The book of Acts says... Dr. Luke starting it, he says, in my former work, he's talking about the gospel of Luke, I told you about all that Jesus Christ began both to do and to teach. The implication of that word began is that the work continues. It continues through you and through me. That's the idea. And so David is saying, listen, God spoke to me and, and by ruling in fear of the Lord justly, I can be Jesus to the people around me. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't always feel like Jesus. Oftentimes, I just buy into what the enemy is whispering in my ear, saying, you're a blow it, you're a loser. I'm like, yeah, I am, you know? I don't always feel like Jesus, which is why, and I close with this, verse 5, here's what David says, by the anointing of the Holy Spirit of God. He says, although my house is not so with God. And maybe you would say the same thing. You go, you know, my house isn't so with God. I understand that I can rule and I can be like Jesus and I can have the Spirit of God work through me in power, but it's not always that way in my house. He says, although my house is not so with God, yet 
He has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. John said this in 1 John. He said, Beloved, now we are children of God and has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we, sh- but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. Listen, what David is saying here is, look, my house, it's not always good. And, and I'm not always deserving of God's goodness, of, of, of God working through me in such a powerful way that people see Jesus in me. And I don't know necessarily that people always see Jesus in me. But what he's saying is, look, even though there's times when I've been faithless, God is faithful. And David makes reference to the covenant that he had with God. And as we close the service today, we close as we, as we always do, partaking of the bread and of the cup. And this is the symbol of the new covenant that we live in. We, those who have believed in our hearts that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the Messiah who came to pay the penalty for my sins. And if we by faith believe that and receive him as Lord and Savior and we just confess, Lord, I'm a sinner, have mercy on me, forgive me, cleanse me, come in, make me a new creation, then what happens is we become partakers of the new covenant, the covenant in Jesus' blood. The communion elements of the bread represents his body broken for us. The cup represents his blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And today is that opportunity for us to, once again, the first day of the week, to say, Lord, though my house, it's not that way in my house all the time. I live under the covenant of your love and your grace. And I can trust in you and I do trust in you.